Over the last couple of months, we have been studying the Gospel of Matthew, and we've seen the Lord address the issue of spiritual pride. The disciples were prone to debate over which one of them was the greatest in the kingdom, but the Lord Jesus, he made a consistent effort to expose their pride and call them to humility and to selflessness. The Bible affirms over and over again that God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And what is humility? Well, frankly, it is a lowness of mind that does not seek to inflate oneself, but rather sees other people as more important than you are. Furthermore, it is the acknowledgement of the greatness of God in the face of the sinfulness and helplessness of man. And as we'll see, no one modeled the posture of humility better than Jesus Christ himself. And yet we, like the disciples, must be exhorted to steer clear of pridefulness and to embrace a mindset and action of true humility. And so with that, let's turn our attention to Matthew chapter 20. And so if you want to open up your copy of Scripture to Matthew 20, continuing to work our way through this glorious gospel, two of Jesus' disciples have approached him. We saw this last time. They brought their mother along with them, asking Jesus if he would grant them the privilege of sitting on his right and on his left in the kingdom. And while he denied their request in verse 23, saying that only the Father could grant such an honor, he did not miss an opportunity to teach them on the nature of true greatness. So Matthew chapter 20, starting in verse 25, we'll go to verse 28. In the wake of all this, Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall, you shall be your servant. Excuse me. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, as he has been doing all along, Jesus contrasts the way of the world with the way of the kingdom. In the kingdom, the first shall be last and the last first. Or as the apostle Paul notes in 1 Corinthians, he says to the church, consider your calling. Consider where you came from, brethren, that not many of you were wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. Basically, he's saying greatness in the kingdom is not measured by status or success or wealth or dominance or natural ability or charisma. That's not how we're great in God's eyes, none of those things. It is not the outward greatness that measures whether or not a person is truly great. And yet the world possesses its own methods for attaining greatness. And in verse 25, Jesus notes this. He says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great men exercise authority over them. Here, he likens the Gentiles as a representation of all nations of the world, any non-Jewish or even pagan nations. And the implication here is that the Gentile way is the worldly way. That's what he's trying to say. So how do the, the rulers of the Gentiles attain greatness? For example, how did Alexander the Great 
become great? Answer, they lord their power and authority over them, over other people. They dominate and they oppress and they step over others in order to climb to the top of the pile. And we see the philosophy that's played out in virtually every government in the world, including our own. Leaders and politicians and bureaucrats, they all do their best to suppress and dominate the desired will of the masses in order to retain power. And we see this with any world ruler, but even we see this with the so-called great men of the world. The, I think about the robber barons and the tycoons of the 19th and 20th century, the Rockefellers and the Vanderbilts and all those. They didn't become powerful by serving other people and being generous. How did they become powerful? They exercised authority over others and became great in the eyes of the world. However, verse 26, with regard to the kingdom of Christ, he says this, it is not this way among you. Talking to the church, it's, this, is not, this is not how we do it. We don't do what the world does. We don't progress by stepping on people. Or even with the disciples, we don't lobby for a better throne, so to speak. That's not the way of Christ. And so, what is his way? Verses 26 and 27. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to become first shall be your slave. There are two expressions here of the same concept, yet they're expressed on two different levels. First, he deals with the issue of greatness in general. He says, whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Servant. This word here used in the Greek is diakonos. It's where we get the word deacon. And it simply means a servant, someone who serves other people, someone who attends to the needs of others. Frankly, this is the goal of every Christian. All of us should endeavor and desire to serve other people. That's not only for deacons. I mean, deacon, a person who's a servant leader, who that's their specific charge to be over servant ministry, but all of us are called to serve, Galatians 5.13. For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Or 1 Peter 4.10, as each of you has received a special gift, what do we do with our special gifts? Do we hoard them and hang on to them and use them for our own benefit? What does Peter say? He says, rather, employ it, the special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So whatever God gives us in terms of gifts or privileges or blessings or whatever benefit we have that we've been given by God, we are called and commanded to employ what we have received by God in the special service of other people. And so service should be a constant devotion for us in the Christian life. And yet here, Jesus predicates it on the desire to become great. Now, at first glance, you could look at this and say, well, it almost looks like service is the price of greatness as if it were a transaction. If you want to be great, just serve people and then you'll be deemed to be great. But that's not how Jesus is talking about this in the context here. Because remember, we're called to be humble. We're called to be humble. And humble people don't crave greatness. We don't desire it. We don't chase after prestige and accolades and status. No, humble people are humble, 
in mind and in heart. We read even Paul's heart in First Thessalonians chapter 2 when he talks to the church. He says, for we never came to you with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness, nor do we seek glory from men, he says, neither from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. We could have come to you, he says, we could have come to all of you as apostles of Jesus Christ, ambassadors of the kingdom of heaven, and we could have demanded some level of honor or prestige among you. He says, but we didn't do that. Verse 7, he says, but instead we proved to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Because that's the Christian way. That's the way of Christ. Gentleness and tenderness and serving others in love. That's how we are to be to other people. And yet, if pride begins to rear its ugly head and you begin to desire greatness, if that creeps into your wants and your desires and you can feel it coming on, oh, I just, I want someone to notice what I'm doing, then Jesus prescribes a method to humble your ego. Here it is. Become a servant. You want to be great? Serve faithfully. Verse 27, he says, And whoever wishes to become first among you shall be your slave. He intensifies the lesson here. He goes a little farther. See, now it's not just greatness in general. He's not talking about general greatness. Now he says, whoever wishes to be first among you. He's not talking about greatness anymore. Now he's talking about preeminence. He's talking about the greatest. Number one, what is the prescription here? They must become lower than a diakonos, a servant. Instead, they must become a doulos, a slave. This is the lowest position in Roman society at that time. A slave is one who is owned by the master and serves only the needs of the master and has no expressed will of their own. Interestingly enough, the Bible actually calls all people slaves. In Romans 6, teaches us that every single person is either a slave to sin or a slave of righteousness. And as Christians, he says, having been freed from sin, verse 18, we now have become slaves of righteousness and thereby slaves of God. So if you're a Christian, you're a slave of God, a slave of righteousness. And yet the notion of slavery in service of other people, it seems like a strange thing to us, especially uh, considering our own American heritage. It almost, the word sounds unconscionable, doesn't it? But Jesus illustrates here this complete devotion of selfless service for the good of other people. It's when you consider the welfare of others to be of the highest priority, even at great cost to yourself. This is what Jesus meant when he said in John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that one would lay down his life for his friends. You want to have no greater love in the entire world than give yourself completely for someone else. That's the greatest love this is true and ultimate greatness manifested in fully committed service. Of course, we, we bristle at this notion, don't we? Deliberate slavery, selfless service, a, a dying to self. Who would do such a thing? Well, Jesus did. 
Look at verse 28. Verse 28. He says, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The gospel record in many places includes statements like this. The Lord in many places gives reasons for why he came to earth. Now, all of them point to one overarching mission, but they're expressed in various different emphases. So, for example, in Luke 19.10, Jesus says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. He says, this is why I came. I came to seek and save. The emphasis here is on a saving and a rescuing mission. So he asked the question, why did Jesus come to earth? He says in Luke 19.10, for salvation. Then John 10.10, whereas false shepherds and thieves come only to kill and destroy God's people, he says, I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly. So there he's talking about his life-giving mission. What about his prophetic and revelatory ministry. After all, Jesus is called the divine word. We read about this in John chapter 18 when he's talking to Pontius Pilate. Pilate asks him if he's a king, and Jesus says to him, you say correctly that I am a king. And then he says this, for this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth, and everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And so Jesus has come with God's life-giving and truthful revelation. He is the divine messenger of heaven. But all of these self-proclamations point to one main mission of Jesus Christ. The mission of Jesus Christ. He is God's chosen Savior who has come to teach the way of salvation, to grant life, and to redeem his people by his own sacrifice. Or as Paul notes in 1 Timothy 1.15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's why he came. And yet here in Matthew 20.28, 20, which is actually a parallel of Mark 10.45, it brings the mission of Christ into a deeper level here. It intensifies it even more because in this verse, this self-identifying, self-fulfilling statement here, you get to the heart and the humility of Jesus Christ. Here, he typifies and demonstrates ultimate service, a glorious service that costs the life of the servant. But I want to look at this verse just in a, a couple of small pieces here. The verse itself, verse 28, Jesus says, just as, it's likening to this principle of humility and service here, but he refers to himself as the Son of Man, We've seen this title a lot in the Gospel of Matthew. It's a messianic title that comes from Daniel chapter 7. The idea here being that in Daniel 7, the prophet himself sees this vision of heaven. And he sees the Lord God in heaven. And he calls him the Ancient of Days. And he's seated on the throne. And he's approached on the throne by, as Daniel says, one like a son of man. In other words, Daniel sees a human-like figure standing in heaven where no human belongs and approaching the throne of God, and the Son of Man approaches God, the Ancient of Days, and then the Lord God, who's sitting on the throne, gives the Son of Man dominion and glory and a kingdom. He is exalted on high. 
And so this heavenly son of man is exalted, and Daniel says when he is exalted, it says all peoples, nations, and men of every language, he does so so that they might serve him. Serving the son of man. Again, it is this son of man, Israel's Messiah, who is enthroned and exalted and glorified and receives service from every single person, from every single nation on earth. That's the prophecy. And that's the vision that Daniel receives. And so every Jew in Israel at that time is looking forward to the day when the long-awaited Messiah would come and he would rule and reign over everybody in Jerusalem and thereby receive honor and receive service. And yet Jesus then here says the very same Son of Man did not come to be served. Well, what's that all about? Why would the Messiah prophesied by Daniel, said to receive service, why would he come and not be served by his people? He did not come to be served, Jesus says, but to serve. He turns the whole thing on its head. And now, Messiah's mission is one of service, but not just a generic service or a, a, just a general benevolence. He's not a cosmic do-gooder. That's not the mission of Jesus Christ. It's far more targeted than that. The Son of Man came to earth in order to serve. How is he going to do it? He tells us by giving his life as a ransom for many. He wanted to serve with his very life. But I want to even focus more so on three words here, the last three words in what he says. The first word I want to look at is the word ransom. In the Greek, it's the word lutron. Literally, it's the price paid to release a slave. It's the price of their redemption. That's literally what this ransom is. If you wanted to free a slave, you had to pay a fee. And the ransom was then paid to bring them out of their slavery. And so we know that just in generally, biblically, we are regarded as the slaves, whether you're slaves of sin or slaves of righteousness, but we're the slaves. Christ is the redeemer, and the cost of the ransom is his life. So that's the picture he's painting. But then he says that the Son of Man is giving his life as a ransom for many. The word for is very important here. There's something done, this word for, is something done in exchange for something else or in place of something else. This is the word of substitution. Substitution. In a very technical sense, the ransom payment takes the place of the slave. Instead of possessing the slave, the master now possesses the money. So you can see there's been an exchange that's taken place. And yet here, we see that the payment to redeem the slave is not money, it's the life of the Son of Man. He gives himself for, in place of, in exchange of, in substitution for the slave. And then we see this word, many. He gave his life as a ransom for many. Now at first you look at the word and you think, well that seems just a tad bit strange, Many seem sort of arbitrary. It's sort of a random, undisclosed amount of people. Of course, we know from places like John chapter 10 that the Lord Jesus has come to give his life for his sheep. Matthew 1.21, he came to give his life for his people. 
Ephesians 5.25, he gave his life for the church. Romans 8.32 and 33, for his elect. And yet here, there's a specific reason why Jesus does not include all of those specific titles, but rather he says the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. Before we begin our exposition on the Gospel of Matthew, I guess at this point almost four years ago, I brought us through a study of the Old Testament. If you were with us, you remember, maybe. We looked at Christ in the Old Testament. We covered prophet, priest, king. We covered the book of Malachi. And we we sort of focused in on these themes. And I didn't tell you then what I was doing, but I knew we were going to go to Matthew, so I wanted to do all this backup work in preparation for what we're doing now. So talk about a, a long setup for a payoff here. But we studied at one point a series of of servant songs from Isaiah. If you remember that, we studied Isaiah 42, 49, 50, and then 53. And we went backwards here, and we, we saw from Isaiah 42, the Lord God declaring, he says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. And then we read of the servant's humility and tenderness. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. And then we read this of the servant, a bruised reed he will not break, a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. And so not a boisterous, powerful figure, but a humble, lowly servant who won't even breathe so harshly to blow out a a smoking wick that's dimly burning. And then the second servant song in Isaiah 49 says that he was formed in the womb to be the servant. He's called the despised one, the one abhorred by nations, the servant of rulers. And then the third servant song, Isaiah 50, records the words of the servant, what he says. The servant says this, I gave my back to those who strike me. My cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting, for the Lord God helps me, therefore I am not disgraced. But it is the fourth and final servant song from Isaiah 53 that brings the suffering of the servant to culmination. And so turn in your copy of Scripture to Isaiah 53 this morning. Now, when we talk about Isaiah 53... The song itself actually stretches backward into chapter 52, starting in verse 13. But when people talk about this passage, they just call it Isaiah 53. But for our purposes, we're going to read the whole thing. And we're going to see here that it's the last two verses that are going to showcase the meaning of Christ's statement in Matthew 20, 28. But let's look at this together. Isaiah 52, starting in verse 13 This is the fourth and final servant song of Isaiah. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them, they will see, and what they had not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message? 
And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our, for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he, that he was cut off of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. I want to note a few things as we recover from reading this word here. Again, the great deliverer of God's people is repeatedly called a servant. A servant. Remember, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And so he, this suffering servant, the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ, he is the great servant. We know this. Verse 4 and 5, we see him bearing our griefs and bearing our sorrows and our transgressions and our iniquities. He carries our sins. And notice this word, for. We looked at this last time here, the word of substitution, for. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He himself bore the sin of many. He interceded for the transgressors. Again, this language of substitution, of serving in the place of, in exchange for. The servant is giving up his life in the place of sinners. And then there's the designation of who he's giving his life for. This is where this word comes back again. Verse 11, my servant will justify the many. Verse 12, he himself bore the sin of many. The word is meant to be a connecting point between verse 28 and Matthew 20 and this exact spot right here. He's giving himself for the prophesied people of Isaiah 53. And who is this? 
Who is this many? It's the number, the many numbers of sinners who are enslaved to their transgressions, who are dead in sins, who are in need of redemption. And it's our suffering servant who comes and lays down his life as a ransom to redeem them, to save them, to free them. And this is how the gospel works, my friends. Romans 6.20 says that we were all slaves of sin. Even further, Ephesians 2.1, dead in sins with no way of escape. And yet God sent a mediator, the son of man, the suffering servant, who, 1 Timothy 2.6 says, gave himself as a ransom for all. He sacrificed his own life on the cross, the righteous for the unrighteous. And when he did this, a ransom was paid to the offended party, and not to Satan, by the way, to God. It was paid to God, the one who is the offended party. And when the price was paid for our sins, we were bought back, purchased, redeemed, and set free. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.20, you, beloved, are not your own. You don't belong to yourselves. You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Because knowing this ought to produce humility and not pride. In fact, 1 Peter 1, 17 through 19 says to conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay upon earth in humble reverence. Why? Knowing, he says, that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but you, beloved, were redeemed with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. See, the Son of Man is the glorious God who receives dominion and honor and glory and a kingdom, as Daniel says. And he is worthy, fully worthy, to be served by all. And the Bible says there will come a day when every single person on planet earth will serve him. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That will happen. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. But even now, Christians around the world, we serve him. We serve him even now. And yet, in love and lowliness, Christ emptied himself, not of glory, not of divinity, but he emptied himself of the honor that's due his name. And Ephesians, excuse me, Philippians 2 says he emptied himself by taking the form of what? Of a bondservant. He took on a bondservant to himself, the, the being of a slave, of a servant, and being made in the likeness of men, it says, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. My friends, this is the greatest service that's ever been offered. The greatest thing he could have ever done. That he would give his life for ours. That he would redeem us and pay for our sins. That he would give of his own perfect righteousness. And give up all as a ransom for many. Unbelievable, isn't it? And yet, we must believe that. 
I want to close with one final example of service performed by our Lord Jesus Christ. Turn over to John chapter 13. The events of John 13 take place on the evening before the Passover, the Passover dinner. At this point, Jesus is only hours away from going to the cross and only three days away from the resurrection. But before he goes away, he does something that the disciples are not expecting. He offers them much. He teaches them. He encourages them. But then he does something truly amazing. He serves them. John chapter 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil, having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter and he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, what I do, what I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew that the one who was betraying him, for this reason he said, not all of you are clean. So when he washed their feet, And taking his garments and reclined at the table again, he said, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then the Lord and the teacher washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should also do as I did to you. Truly I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. These same men at the table who were arguing with one another over which one of them is the greatest, and they keep on arguing over and over, Matthew 18, they're arguing about it. Matthew 19, now Matthew 20, it's going to happen later too arguing which one of them is worthy of the most greatness and glory. And yet now, the Son of Man, the King of Heaven, the suffering servant, kneels down and washes their feet. And in doing so, not only he puts on his own sacrificial heart on display, but he also models for them the kind of service that he expects from all of his followers. 
which extends, by the way, all to us, that we are to do the same thing. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. O oh Lord God, we are humbled by these words. We are humbled when we see this, this great reversal, this seeming dichotomy, this condescension, that the Son of Man, the greatest of the great, the one enthroned in the highest place and worthy of all honor, all glory, all service, would then come to earth, born in a manger to a poor family, living on earth without a home to call his own, who himself would be mocked and spit upon and ridiculed and scourged and crucified and blasphemed. One who would humble himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And even when he was preparing his heart to go to the cross, he was not even thinking about himself. He thought of the disciples and washed their feet. Oh Lord, such a man, who is this? It is you, oh Lord. You are the one who has served us. And yet in our pride and in our arrogance and in our selfishness, we exalt ourselves above other people. We think so greatly of ourselves. Lord, when we, cons- when we conceptualize this, it's, it's hard not to feel ashamed. But I think that's your point, O oh Lord, that you desire that we would lower ourselves before other people and also humble ourselves before you. Did you not say, O Lord, that if we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God at the right time, we'll be exalted? Will you not exalt the lowly, O Lord? And yet, why do we worry about that? I don't know. But Lord, we know that you are so great and so mighty that you would come and give your life on the cross. And that all sinners everywhere who would repent, cast off their sins, confess them to you, you would not only forgive them, but you would bear their iniquities on yourself. And you would place these transgressions onto your own bleeding back march to the cross, be nailed there by your own sovereign will and die crushed under the mighty hand of God. And you would redeem and purchase us with your own precious blood. And our guilt and our iniquities and our shame would die with you. And yet, by faith, not only are we forgiven, but we have eternal life by your resurrection 
coming alive the third day, bursting forth from the grave. We have life in your holy name. And so, Lord, let us rejoice. Let us sing praises. Let us be joyful and abundant in thanksgiving that our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, the suffering servant of Isaiah, has given his life as a ransom to free the slaves, O Lord. That's who we are, freed slaves. So let us live free, O Lord God. Let us live free from the bondage of sin. Let us live free to love and sacrifice for other people. Let us live free of our grief and our guilt and our shame and honor you with full affections, full of faith, and trusting in you implicitly. Oh, Lord, let us worship you in spirit and truth. And let this be our great confession, oh, Lord. Not because we are so great, but because you are the greatest of all. We exalt your name today. In Jesus' name, amen.